It's the story of the woman from the seventh chapter of Luke who had experienced an extremely difficult past. Her past haunted her, and it had now become uh, part of her DNA. She couldn't get away with it. But her encounter with Jesus absolutely changed everything. Let me read it to you, Luke chapter 7. If you want to turn in your Bible, or it will be on the screen starting with verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. When a certain immoral woman, this version uses the word immoral. Uh, you can, your version may use something different. There's some versions, at least one comes right out and says she was a prostitute. Certain immoral woman from that city heard he was eating there. Uh, when she heard he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell upon his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to, him, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. And I look at that and I am reminded that we are so prone as humans to get a certain perspective and think we have the whole picture and pass judgment on something that we have seen when we don't have the whole picture. So I love the first part of verse 40 that says, Then Jesus answered his thoughts. What? Does that remind anybody here how great our God is? Jesus knows what you're thinking. Jesus answered his thoughts. I, that so struck me. I thought, okay, i got to look that up in a few more versions. I looked at another four or five. It's worded different. It's the same idea. Jesus answered his thoughts. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. Then Jesus told him this story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other. But neither of them could repay him, so he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? And Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. And then the scripture says this, then Jesus turned to the woman. Now he's still speaking to, to Simon, but he turned to the woman. She became his full focus of that moment. He turned to her and he said, Simon, look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she's not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. Now, you and I might think, well, that's a bit odd, but that was the custom. Those were the, uh, it was the culture of the day, the simple, normal things that you offered to a guest that came to your house. And then Jesus says this, I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little 
shows only little, uh, little love. Jesus is making it clear that those who have forgiven much will love much. Those who've been forgiven a little will love little. And then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. The men at the table said among themselves, who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Does anybody join me in the thought this morning that Jesus is wonderful? C.S. Lewis said this, Christianity is true fairy tale. He's essentially, Mr. Lewis is essentially saying that you have a situation with impossible odds and then the unexpected happens. He's showing us uh, the little girl locked in a dungeon who one day becomes a princess. It's the ugly frog who's turned into a handsome prince. And so what does that mean to us? What does that say to us? It says that you and I really need to be in the frog kissing business because we never know who is in the individual whom God is about to call out. I don't know your story. I can tell you mine. I'm thankful there was someone who called out something in me, called out a destiny in me, called out a musician in me, called out a pastor in me that I didn't even know was there. I'm so thankful for those who are willing to call out in other people. Can I get an amen to that? The truth is, church, every one of us have been kissed by mercy. We've not been kissed by religion. We've not been kissed by church. We've not been kissed by a service, as wonderful as it is. We've not been kissed by Bethesda. But when your lips touch the resurrected Jesus, only God knows what can happen to any one of us. I love the way Chuck Swindoll describes this moment of the woman with the alabaster box. It's, it's really worth me reading it to you. He says it like this. He says, while families gather for dinner and close their door for the night, this woman's workday begins. With saffron scarves and lavender veils, dangling earrings, and a dab of perfume, she dresses herself for show. She survives by her looks, and looks she'll get. She'll get a leer, a scowl, a wink, and a sneer. She'll get all sorts of looks except for one, and that's the true look of love. She's a prostitute. How many times her heart has ached and longed for more than just one night to be valued instead of evaluated, to be prized instead of priced. Her scarlet letter will never be clean. This day, though, she will meet what she hardly dared to ever hope for. She will meet love. She will meet kindness. And on this day, this woman will meet Jesus. Here's what we know to be true. An encounter with Jesus can change your life like nothing else. And while others looked at her one way, I think we can tell from Scripture that Jesus saw her and looked upon her completely differently. And I want to spend just a few moments this morning telling you the, the three things distinctively, and I want you to give me your full attention for just a few minutes and maybe even take out a pencil and a piece of paper to write down just a couple of things that were distinctive about the way Jesus looked at her. I want to tell you the things, the three things I think Jesus saw when he looked upon her. Number one, I think he saw her back. I think he saw her hair. And I think he saw her eyes. Give me just a few moments to pack, unpack these things. I'm going to take the first one. I think Jesus saw her back. There are two ways that you can see yourself, either by photograph or by a mirror. 
Now, the photograph is how we wish we always looked, most of them. It, no one takes a photograph without fixing their hair, getting a few things straight and all together. You know, but then, finally, they'll snap the picture or do the fish face or whatever it is that they do and because they want it to look right for the, for the photograph. However, the mirror shows you exactly who you are. When you woke up this morning, you probably went and stood in front of a mirror and observed the damage that night had done to you. Like no other thing could do, this side of your face was over here. And you stood there in the mirror squinting, wondering, how could these things be? How could this happen? But that is the real you. This selfie is not the real you, sweetheart. It's not the real you. But the mirror shows you who you really are. And until we are willing, church, to see ourselves for who we really are and to see our real self, we will never understand our need of God. When we see ourselves, when all we see of ourselves is, is just the photograph and the thing that we've prepared well and that we have gotten it all together to take, we will always say, oh, I'm good. I've got it all together. Things are fine with me and we'll never know how much we need the Lord. And when this woman was at this place where Jesus was, she didn't see a photo of herself. She knew exactly, exactly who she was in the mirror. So she shows up at this place, and she finds herself standing on the outskirts of this dinner that was about to change her life. Now, here's what I need you to understand. In those days, it went like this. The best seats in the house were those reserved for those who would be reclining around the table. That was the, that was the best seats in the house. That was, those were the invited positions. Those were what you and I would maybe call the box seats. Someone was invited, you were special enough, you were important enough, and those, those were the seats for you. But what's interesting is to, when you study the culture, there was also what we would refer to as a general admission section at these dinners that the town was invited to, and the reason for that is, you know, the more the merrier. If you have more people, it fills up the room, and the, and the excitement adds to the excitement. But the general admission section, you could come only as an observer and not as a participant. In other words, you better eat before you come, because you ain't getting no food when you get there. You're just around, I wish I had a wall behind me. You're just up against the wall. You're lined up against the wall. You're in the general admission seat, but you're there to add to the excitement of the room and, and, and whatever's going to take place, but you are there to observe and not to participate. You can listen, you can observe, but you cannot take part in what's happening at the table. This woman somehow got a position in the room with her back against the wall in the general admission section. And because of her reputation in the community, I can just imagine men at the table saying, what is she doing here? How did she get in here? You know what, and what's also interesting is that maybe one or more of her clients were seated at the table. And there she is, standing against the wall. And she could not care less about anything else. All she knows is this. That man who's sitting at that table 
May had the answer she's been looking for all of her life. And with her back against the wall as an observer, she's contemplating, how can I leave this wall and get close enough to him who is seated at that table? And so how did she know that this might even be possible? You know, there's... When you read these situations in the Bible, sometimes not all the questions are answered for you. And I, I find myself asking a few things that just kind of aren't there. And there's some digging you can do to find out. How did she know that something might even be possible? What motivated her to even show up at this dinner? Well, let me tell you why. Because when you read just a few verses back in that same chapter, you discover that she had most likely heard what had just taken place when Jesus had walked into her town. And what I'm about to read had taken place, uh, Luke chapter 7, verse 11, just down the street, not very far, within the same neighborhood as the Pharisee who was hosting the dinner. It happened just down the street. Here's what it says in Luke 7, starting with verse 11. Soon afterward, Jesus went with his disciples to the village of Nain, and a large crowd followed him. A funeral procession was coming out as he approached the village gate. The young man who had died was a widow's only son, and a large crowd from the village was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart overflowed with compassion. Don't cry, he said. And then he walked over to the coffin, and he touched it. And the bearer stopped. Young man, he said, I tell you, get up. And then the dead boy sat up and Pastor Dan took off running at that point. It might be worded a little different in your version. Okay. The dead boy sat up and he began to talk. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. So in the very city, in the very neighborhood where the dinner was to take place a little later on. Jesus has just stopped a funeral procession and performed a miracle. Now listen, you just got to play this out in your mind with me for, for just a minute. Jesus is walking into the city. Coming over the road is a funeral of a young man who died too soon. And there is about to be a clash of death and life because they are about to intersect on that day. I'm just wondering, this is the way my mind works, I'm just wondering if we could see the spirit world and what was going on at that exact moment in hell. The demons are thinking, I thought we took that boy out. And then they see Jesus coming, and I can see hell going, oh, shoot, this is not going to work out well. There's Jesus, and our work and our plans are about to get completely messed up. Because here is Jesus, resurrection life himself, in the, in the flesh, about to hit death, and there's about to be a clash of the titans beyond description. Let me make it plain this morning. Resurrection life always defeats death every time. Resurrection life defeats death every time. What makes it even more interesting is that in that time, there were three things that you were not allowed to touch. You couldn't touch a leper because of the fear that the disease would get on you and you would become unclean. It was also the cultural understanding you couldn't touch an immoral woman because her, her impurity might get on you. 
And you couldn't touch a dead person because then you would be unclean. And I'm here to show you and remind you this morning that Jesus touched every one of those people. He touched the leper. He touched the woman. And he touched the dead. And the concern of the people was that what was on each of those people would get on Jesus. That leprosy would get on Jesus. That immorality would get on Jesus. That death would get on Jesus. But when you know this resurrected Jesus, then you understand that when he touches you, you don't get on him. He gets on you. And here's that prostitute with her back against the wall. And she shows up at the dinner. Now, she's heard about what happened down the street earlier that day. And Jesus went up and touched that coffin. He touched that dead body and he came back to life. So why wouldn't she be motivated to show up at that dinner, finding out he's going to be there? Here she is in the journal admissions section. Can't say anything. Supposed to be quiet. Can't eat anything. Her back against the wall. And she thought, just Just maybe, if he did that to the dead man, just maybe he'll rub off on me and I can be set free from the bondage of my life. Now play this out in your mind with me. And that woman then did the unthinkable. Her back comes off the wall and she determined at that moment, I am no longer going to be an observer. She's about to become a participator because she's thinking, if that man can raise the dead, surely he can erase my past. And her thought process was this, do I stand here like the others in the general admission section? Do I stand here with my back against the wall or do I forget y'all? Maybe a little southern accent in there. Because I'm about to go meet and come in contact with the man who raises the dead. And her back leaves the wall. I'm just wondering how many of you are here this morning who feel like your back is against the wall. Your circumstances have brought you to the place where the best you can ever hope is to be, the best you can ever hope for is to be an observer and not a participator. I just want you to know Jesus is turning his focus on you this morning. He's turned toward you this morning. He wants to forgive you of your sins so that you can get off that wall and receive his resurrection life. Let's talk next about the fact that Jesus saw her hair. In that time, it wasn't the ring that determined if you were taken or not. No one looked at the left ring finger as we do today. If you wanted to know if a woman was taken or if she was available, you wouldn't look at her finger, you looked at her hair. Because if her hair was up, she was available. If her hair was down, she was taken. Hair up, she's available. Hair down, some of the ladies in the congregation right now, you're wadding that hair up. This is the 21st century. Hair up, available. Hair down, taken. So when that woman went out at night and she was clocked in for her duties, her hair was up. But suddenly she realized this, that man raises the dead. That man can erase my past. That man may rub off on me. 
And she willfully, consciously makes a determination to stop being observer and takes her back off the wall. But in that moment, I almost see it in slow motion this morning, before she gets to his feet, she, whatever is holding her hair up, she yanks that out so that she can let her hair come down. Because when she did so, she was declaring this, I am off the clock now. In fact, I am now unemployed. I'm not available to you. I'm not available to you. I'm not available to you. I'm especially not available to you. I'm not available to you. Because I've just been taken. I've decided I belong to Jesus. Because I've seen what he can do. Saw it with my own eyes. And I believe that if he can raise the dead, if he can touch those unclean things and nothing comes, comes on him but he gets on the, he can touch my past, he can erase my past, and he can set me free. Some of us here this morning, male and female, need to take our hair down and stop being available to everything this world has to offer. You get up in the morning and you make it clear to everyone who can observe you, that you're available. You make it clear to hell that you're available for whatever they want to offer you today. You make it clear that you're available to the spirit of the age. From, from that, from that, from get that hair down and decide that from this moment forward you're going to belong to Jesus. Back off the wall. Hair down. And here's the final one. I think Jesus saw her eyes, and more specifically, he saw her tears. In thinking about this passage, let me read verse 38 one more time, Luke 7, 38. Then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. I may be the only one here who does this. And I usually try to keep it to myself, but and I said it a while ago, I, sometimes I have to ask questions about scriptures that I've read. Like, how did she get to the dinner? What motivated her to come? And when it comes to this part, I, you know, I read it, I accept it, it's the word of the Lord, but there are questions that come to my mind. Like, I have to wonder, can anybody cry that much? Really? I mean, these are feet from the dirt roads of Jerusalem that we're talking about. And the basins used to wash feet are typically large water basins. So how do you wash dusty, dirty feet with just a few tears? Now, you know, I've wept many times in my life, but not that much at any one setting. Science tells us that you might cry about two cc's that would be measurable at any one given time, but that's about it. Okay, here's what happened for me this week. About six or seven years ago, a dear, dear friend of mine recommended an unusual little 100-page book to me that I have. I have it on my iPad. I have it electronically. It's written by Barbara Bowen, and it is entitled, Strange Scriptures That Perplex the Western Mind. Strange Scriptures That Perplex the Western Mind by Barbara Bowen. Without a doubt, the cultural differences of the day and time of the writing of Scripture, uh, the difference of its geographic location to where we are, make it challenging at times for us to understand certain verses that you and I are trying to take on face value, but we are seeing them through the lens of our Western culture. 
and they will either not make sense to us or at best seem baffling or strange. I have this Kindle version, that book on my iPad, as I said, and I was flipping through it this week, and I discovered a section that caught my attention based upon what I was going to share with you today called Bathed His Feet with Tears. In this little book, Barbara Bowen points out something that makes this whole idea of washing the feet of Jesus with tears start to make a little bit of sense. I want to share it with you because she said this, this woman did not cry on his feet is what we would assume by a simple cursory reading of the passage. But rather, what she did was she brought her tear bottle and she poured it on his feet. Ms. Bowen further explained that at that time, whether you were a prince or a pauper, whether you were royalty or the town prostitute, everyone had a tear bottle. The wealthy had a fancier bottle of, made of thin glass and it was designed very nice. Poorer people had a simple one made of pottery, possibly not even baked or glazed, but they had some. Everyone had a tear bottle. That tear bottle was used in the hardest seasons of your life. It was the bottle which contained the tears from every hurt, every disappointment, every sense of rejection, every pain, every experience of loss and grief, whatever it is that has brought tears to you, that bottle was used. It had a certain design on it in such a way that it rested on your cheek. And when you wept, you could catch your tears in the bottle. And not only that, but when you died, you were buried with your tear bottle. You think I'm making this up, you can go check out Psalm 56, 8 and see something, but do that later this afternoon. Think of that woman and what was in her bottle of tears. Every man who had ever abused her, every man who had ever taken advantage of her, every man who had kicked her to the curb, every man who had ever said, I love you, and then walked away. Think of the possibilities that her own father may have left her at an early age and she was rejected by him and, and left to live without the protection of an earthly father. And every single night this woman cries herself to sleep. She catches the tears in that bottle and she bottles them up and then she puts the cork in the top. And she's standing against the wall, her back against the wall, just observing, not allowed to participate, being religious just like everybody else because it's what you do when you go to the places like that. And she determines, I can stand here against this wall just like in a religious service. I can walk in and do what I'm supposed to do. But then she sees Jesus and she decides, if he can rub off on a dead man, he can rub off on me. If I take my hair down, I know I'm unemployed and I'm no longer available. And finally, she has to make a decision with that tear bottle. I can either leave here with my pain, my lifetime of hurts, my abuse, my woundings, my grief, my disappointments, or since I observe that no one else 
offered that man Jesus the basic courtesies due to him being a guest that they should have offered to him, then I'm willing to be the one to step up and lavish my tears on him to wash his feet and dry them with my hair. So do I take this bottle of tears with me to my grave? Or just maybe, is there another place I can take my pain? Is there another place I can take my hurt? Is there another place I can take every disappointment I've ever experience. Those tears were her past. Those tears were her painful stories. And it is apparent to me, she decided in that moment, I don't want to hold on to this anymore. I can't do this anymore. And at that moment, interesting moment where it all came together, back off the wall, hair down, she pulled the plug from that bottle And she poured those tears, lifelong tears, at the only place that those tears belong, at the very feet of Jesus. Jovan, get ready, dear. I'm going to need you in a second. Think about this. This wasn't water to clean his feet. This was every painful story of her life. The only one who can take my pain, which I can no longer hold, is the Lord Jesus. And if you're questioning this morning why she chose to pour her tears on his feet, then let me remind you what Hebrews 2 verse 8 says. It says, you have put all things in subjection under his feet. Which means... When something goes under his feet, it is under his authority. Therefore, the tears of every person who has poured out from their tear bottle, every painful story, every hurtful situation, every abuse, every season of grief, if you have put it under his feet, then you have put it under his authority because it then belongs to him. By the way, I don't ever do this this way, but I just want you to know from this moment forward to the end of the service, this altar is open to anyone who wants to come and figuratively pour out their tear bottle on the feet of Jesus as I finish this sermon. Balcony, lower floor, whatever, you're not going to bother me. If your heart has been moved and ready, then maybe you're ready to say, I've come to pour my praise on him like oil from my alabaster box. You can do that at any time. Because you know what, church, sometimes all you have is tears. That's all you have. Becky and I understand that. We've gone through seasons of life, difficult times, when that's all we had was our tears. There were were no words to be said. All we had was tears, and you all know what that is too. But you know what? I would contend that tears are prayers too. They can travel to God when there are no words left to express yourself. I also want you to know this, that if you walk out of this house today, and you get in your car, and you get on the freeway to get home, and you take your tear bottle with you, you do not have the capacity to handle it yourself. You don't have it. There's only one place where those tears belong, and that is at the feet of Jesus. It's Warren Wearsby, the great Baptist pastor, who said it this way, the past is a rudder to guide you, not an anchor to drag you. The past is a rudder to guide you, not an anchor to drag you. So how do you turn an anchor into a rudder? Well, The lady of our text tells us this exactly. Number one, if you and Jesus are in the same place, then great things are going to happen. 
And by the way, Jesus doesn't just reside in churches. He's everywhere. Get in the presence of Jesus with your praise. Get in the presence of Jesus with your worship. When you and he are in the same place, incredible things can happen. Number two, only Jesus can close the chapter on a tough pass with immediate forgiveness. Jesus didn't put her on probation. He didn't say, well, we'll watch and see if you can do better than you've done before. He didn't say anything like that. He looked at her and he said, and we just read it, your sins are forgiven. Listen to me carefully this morning, church. When God forgives you, you don't have to think about it. You don't have to decide anything other than to accept the unconditional love he's offering you. You don't have to say, I need more of this, or I need to be better at this, or I need to stop doing that. Let me tell you, if you have to stop doing something to get to Jesus, you'll be trying to get to him for the rest of your life. And all the religious people will say, oh, so that means you're saying that anybody can come and sit at the table, anybody, and they can come with all their sin, and they can come with, is that what you're saying, Pastor Dan? Come on. Stop with all the religious stuff. That's why no one likes you. You're telling me that I have to clean up to get my life to Jesus? You don't have the capacity to clean up your life to get to him. That's why you need him. He loves you just the way you are, but he loves you so much he will not keep you just the way you are. So come to Jesus and let him deal with all the stuff. Finally, when I try to manage my own tear bottle, things don't go well for me. When I try to manage it myself, you know what happens? I become cynical. I become bitter. When I'm managing my own tear bottle, I become resentful. I don't trust people. I don't trust churches. I don't trust religion. I don't trust pastors. I don't trust anybody. And every night when you go to bed, there's a place for your pain. But the place for you to uncork your bottle and pour it at the feet of Jesus where it belongs. This morning, I'm challenging you. Get your back off that wall. Take your hair down and make it clear. You belong to him. You're not available to anybody else. Uncork that tear bottle and pour it at the feet of Jesus, where it belongs. Sing it again.